Welcome to Twin Talk. This is Angie and I'm here with my sister Joy and we are just excited to be here once again discussing another book and today we're going to go a little different route in that we're going to be discussing Shakespeare and not just Shakespeare but there's actually a, a little book that I picked up and I was just going to look on the inside cover here. I always kind of make little notes. Oh, Joy, hi. Sorry. Hello. You want to say something? No, you're good. Keep <laughs> okay. going. Sorry. Um, every time I buy a book, I always kind of make a little note, so I'll kind of remember where I bought it. So anyway, I bought this little book in Rogers, Arkansas at an antique mall in 2014. Um, I think it was published around 1925, and it's called um, Tales from Shakespeare by Charles and Mary Land. And Joy and I were discussing the size of this book before the podcast. I would guess it's about three to four inches uh, wide by about six inches high. Yeah, it looks like a, to me, I think of a four by six photo. Yeah. To me, it looks just like the size of a four yeah. by six it's photo. It's real little. Pretty small. I don't know why, but I love little things. Or three by five. It's very small. I think it's probably about three three by five, yeah. But I love little, little books. I just think mm -hmm. they're so cute, like little petite books. Um, and this is actually a Collins Illustrated Pocket Classic. Joy, have you ever heard of those before? I'm not sure. Okay, so... Collins Illustrated Harper as in Harper Collins. Uh, well, in the the research that I did, they just called it. Now I think eventually it may have become Harper Maybe Collins, but originally it was called Collins okay. Illustrated Pocket Classics, and uh, they originated in the UK around the 1920s. Um, they actually started in 1903. Okay, it's when these little uh, books started coming out. And so what the appeal was was they were very small and in, inexpensive, and they had lots of illustrations. So people just gobbled them up. Uh, said the series, um, they were very cheap, and they said there were 80,000 copies sold in the first, of the first 10 titles, and as they sold 80,000 copies in the first six months. Wow. So, they were just really, really popular. So, anyway, the reason, like I said, the reason they were so popular is because they were just small, they were beautiful, and they were affordable. Well, and I will mm -hmm. say, right before we did this podcast, I went ahead and read one of the stories in there. Did you read Macbeth? I read Macbeth. Okay. Now, don't, I don't want the listeners to get confused. It's not the full play. This is like a condensed version and mm -hmm. more modern language of the play. Mm -hmm. And I loved the size of the book. It was so easy to hold on to. Now, if you have bad eyesight, the print isn't that big, but I love the size of the book. Yeah, me too. I just I just love it. And, and I kind of was looking to see. And so when they talk about classics, so I just kind of read through. There's If you ever get time, you can Google all the authors that they actually did books on and some of them included um, Jane Austen, the Brawny sisters, uh, of course Fenmore Cooper, Dickens, Emerson, Hawthorne, Washington Irving, Edgar Allan Poe, Sir Walter Scott, Mark Twain. Those are just a so few. So a bunch of, uh, yeah. A so bunch of uh, any, it, basically any classic mm -hmm. that you want to read, there's probably in one of these little books. Cool. Yeah, so I thought if you are a book collector, and you mm -hmm. like collecting the classics? What a perfect! Uh, yeah, that would be awesome for us. They look very old and vintage. They're small, so they'd be easy to store somewhere. Yeah, mm -hmm. that'd be a great type yeah. type of book to uh, collect. I think definitely. So this book that we are discussing today is Tales Tales from Shakespeare, and it was first published in eighteen oh seven. It's never been out of print, which kind of surprised me. Uh, but anyway, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but these stories, they're adapted from 20 of Shakespeare's plays, and they're clever, powerful summaries designed to provide children with enough plot and characterization to allow them to understand the, play them, the plays themselves when they read them later, 
when they read the authentic versions later. So in other words, they're trying to whet the appetite of young kids. That was the whole purpose of this book. Okay. So we're not going to give you Shakespeare full on. We're going to make it uh, easier to understand. We're going to give you just the main plot without all the fluff and just kind of whet your appetite. And then when you actually do go to read the actual play, you're going to actually understand it better. Okay, awesome. And when you read that, did you... Did you get that vibe? Did you feel like it yeah, was understandable at all? Yeah, I felt like or? instead of struggling through the play Macbeth, which mm-hmm. who knows how many pages, mm-hmm. and struggling and getting frustrated and having to look up every reference and everything just so I can understand it, I sat there and read that in about probably 15, 10 to 15 minutes, yeah. and now I understand the general overall plot and characters, and I understand what the play Macbeth is about. Yes. I love it. And see, I had never understood Mac- or Shakespeare growing up, and I'd never really, I don't think I've ever fully read one of his stories. So when I found this little book, I was intrigued, and that's exactly what I would do, is every so often I would go through and I would just pick one of his plays in there, mm-hmm. and I would read it, and just exactly what you said, it took me maybe 10 to 15 minutes to read an entire play out of this book. Mm-hmm. And, and I did, I understood it. Um, so we're going to talk for uh, just a minute about the authors, okay? It's funny how sometimes in life you might find a, a book that's really intriguing, but the author's history is actually much more interesting. Mm-hmm. And that was the case. And I don't even know how I came across this, but when I was, I, I just was looking, okay, who wrote this? Charles and Mary Lamb. Um, and so Is this a husband and wife or brother okay, and sister? It's a brother and sister. Oh, okay. And just to give you some perspective on the timeline here, Charles was born February of 1775 in oh, London, wow. and Mary was born in 1764. She was quite a bit. She was about um, 11 years younger than him. So she was born in, think of that, 1764. Or older. Older. Yeah. I'm sorry. She was older. 1764, okay. 1775. Wow. Okay. So I am, uh, I, you know, I hate just reading, but I I feel like I just really need to read this one paragraph about their life because it's so interesting. Okay. Um, when he was 20 years old Charles suffered a brief period of insanity and was confined in Hoxton Madhouse but it was the strain of his sister's life at the time caring for a senile father paralyzed mother and elderly aunt as well as carrying out her domestic duties on a limited budget and training an apprentice she had a lot on her plate wow that makes me appreciate my life a lot okay so (laughs) gee that Say that again, what all was on her plate there. His sister was caring for a senile father, a paralyzed mother, an elderly aunt, as well as as carrying out her domestic duties on a limited budget and training an apprentice. Wow. So they said it was all these things that suddenly made Mary snap. Ah, What did Mary do? Okay. What did Mary do? One Uh evening in September of 1796, Mary became hysterical. And, per- and pursued her young apprentice around the room with a knife. Oh, my goodness. Her mother intervened, trying to keep her from stabbing this little dude. And <laughs> and her mother intervened. Well, I was, thought her mother was paralyzed. <laughs> well, it does say she was uh, paralyzed, so I don't really quite understand that. But Maybe she... I, uh, maybe she just got between them or something. And yeah, like maybe, maybe she, she could was be only, her upper body, and she could have been just paralyzed from the waist down yeah. or something. But it just says <laughs> it just says her mother intervened and was stabbed to death with a heart. Oh, so no. she killed her own mother. So then they go on to say a verdict of temporary insanity was found against Mary, <sighs> and under the comparatively benign rules that then existed, she was placed under Charles' guardianship, her brother, 
after a period in a private madhouse. Oh, my God. So it really was an accident. She was really going after the apprentice, but she accidentally stabbed her Well, they said she was in mother. a fit of madness trying to stab that someone, and then creepy. her mother got in the way, and she killed her mother instead. I just almost pictured, like, Lizzie Borden. Yes. Okay, mm. so they go on to say that despite Lamb's bouts of melancholia and alcoholism, her brother was an alcoholic. Oh, boy. But, okay, truth is stranger than fiction. I'm telling you. can't you. make this stuff up. They said even though he was an alcoholic and she had killed her mother and been in, in and out of insane asylums, it says they both he and his sister enjoyed an active and rich social life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have the murderer and the alcoholic over for yeah, dinner. Yes. They'll have um, lots of fun stories to tell. Yes. Well, this is London, so yeah. I guess anything goes <laughs> oh, well, in Jack London. the Ripper. They're yeah, like, hey, this is I mean, nothing compared to Jack We're talking the late 1700s London. What do you got? What do you what do you got What's to say? You know, so. so their <laughs> London quarters became a kind of weekly salon for many of the most outstanding theatrical and literary figures of the day. For the rest of her life, Mary would occasionally return to private madhouses whenever her psychosis took over her. Oh my and the goodness. lambs rarely traveled without taking a straitjacket with them. And their last home together Don't was a... to pack the straitjacket. <laughs> <laughs> They're, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to. We have mental illness in our family. I mean, our listeners yes, can probably tell it's reached us. <laughs> but we, I'm not trying to make light of mental illness right. at all because right. we we had a grandfather who was schizophrenic, yeah. an aunt and an uncle yeah, who we, dealt with schizophrenia, yes. paranoia. I'm not trying to make light of it, right. but that is really sad when you have to carry a straight yes. jacket wherever you go. And, and that says their last home together was in a madhouse. Oh, so, that is I tragic. Mean, so I just had to tell that. I could not resist telling the no, story. No, that so. is fascinating yeah, to it, me. It, it I'm so of, glad that you looked up the author's <laughs> background. Oh. Okay, let's get to Shakespeare. It just seems like, um, let me just, I just want to interject. I'm sorry. It just seems like every time you read about... Um, a famous person in England, it's like their background's so tragic. I know. And it just feels, it, I well, mean, from the 17 and 1800s, always feels like, feel like their history is there's always like major tragedy involved. Well, which is probably the same here in the, the US. Thought, uh, one thing I was going to bring up, but I thought, oh, this could leave us on a huge rabbit trail, but the, the thought crossed my mind that most people who are artistic by nature, mm-hmm. whether it be writers, singers, painters, they all seem to have just a Little touch of insanity. Touch of insanity. Just touch. They do. I yeah. mean, I mean, think about all the people who are truly creative. A lot of them are suicidal. Mm-hmm. I think of uh, what's the famous writer that committed suicide that lived in Key West. Um, oh, uh, Hemingway. Hemingway. Yeah. I, I just think there's a lot of just emotional. Sylvia Plath, the Bell Jar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's just I just feel like if you're artistically, which minded, is a whole you, yeah. another podcast. Yes. But I read about Sylvia Plath and. I don't know if you know this, but she committed suicide by putting her head in the oven. I knew and she gas suicide, but I didn't know how. Yes, oh. and that was one of the reasons that they changed the style of the oven oh, wow. from emitting this toxic gases. Because remember, this was a long time ago. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons that the oven industry, or whatever you call yes. it, changed. Because they figured out, people figured out how to commit suicide oh by just placing gosh. their head in the oven. And they changed the design of the oven so it didn't emit these toxic fumes. Wow. I may have that wrong, but it, mm-hmm. that's the general idea. Yeah. So yeah. that's a whole nother, sorry. Yeah. Well, I'm going no, that's, that's what I was going to say. We could mm-hmm. have a whole podcast about just, just on, that topic. Yeah, writers who have who are just, alcoholics or have committed suicide yeah. or just have tragic just, just endings. Have, they just all have these demons, you yes. know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Joy, we're going to, let's get to Shakespeare. Um, 
tell me what do you know about Shakespeare? And I know since you're uh, you've taught high school English many years, so I'm sure you didn't get to avoid the whole no Shakespeare ordeal. I mean, wasn't that like required? Yes, so probably still is. My reading. second teaching position, I was teach. I was told I was going to teach Spanish and regular 10th grade English, and then pre-AP English. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and I saw in the curriculum that, okay, ninth grade, at this school anyway, you always read Romeo and Juliet, so they had been exposed to Shakespeare. 10th mm-hmm. grade was Julius Caesar. Hmm. Uh, uh, Hamlet. Okay. Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And then their senior year, I, honestly, I don't remember, but it was one of the major mm-hmm. Shakespeare plays. Okay. So, 10th grade was Julius Caesar. Okay. And I will tell you right now, I was petrified. I don't blame Because you. I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, I remember reading Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember a little bit about us reading Hamlet or one of those. I vaguely remember that. And I honestly, I don't remember... Uh, having to study Shakespeare in college at all. Now, surely we did, but it's, it escapes my memory if we did. I was petrified because I didn't feel qualified to teach Shakespeare to these kids. So I remember just doing an all-out research frenzy, finding mm-hmm. out everything I could about Shakespeare. And I did bring in his childhood and his marriage and some things. And uh, I, I literally had to look up everything I was going to teach because I did not know much at all. But I will say, the kids really got into it. Oh, they okay. got, I let them. Well, here's um, here's some advice in, to new teachers. Because I was just very curious how the kids. Yes, they loved that. it because they loved getting in character. Okay, here's advice to newbie teachers if you ever have to teach a Shakespeare play and you're going to let the kids read in class. Okay, you pick the parts because. It's always, not to be mean, but it's always your weaker readers that want the biggest parts. Oh, really? And I, a lot of times mm-hmm. it is. And you don't want to be mean and go, oh. And, and it's Shakespeare's hard to read, too. But I remember, you know, I let them pick their parts. And for the most part, it was our stronger readers. But there were a couple of really weak readers who had some main parts. And you're literally just sitting there just like... In agony. <laughs> in agony while they try to stumble their way through. So I would say... You know, pick the parts for the kids. but And I'll say this, too. Uh, because I had pre-AP and just regular 10th English, you have to differentiate, you know. So my pre-AP, one of my uh, requirements was that they had to learn the famous Mark Antony uh, speech and Julius Caesar. <laughs> and... I said I wouldn't. I, I my policy is I never make my kids do something that I'm not willing to do myself. So I memorized the speech as well. Well, I was gonna try to look up the speech and kind of skim over it and just oh, see. Oh, you can't recite it. No, oh. this is like you know <laughs> ten, a decade ago. But I was just gonna see if I skimmed over it how much I could remember. Mm-hmm. But I held myself accountable and I I performed the speech in front of my kids oh, to wow. show them, hey, I learned it in about three or four days. Mm-hmm. Just and that you can do it too. And they, a lot of them learned that speech. And so, but yeah, and one other story I have is I taught night school one time. I had a class of about eight high school boys. And of course, night school, if you know anything about night school, these are the kids that goofed off, that skipped (laughs) class, were lazy. Now, there might have been valid reasons for one or two of them why they had such a low grade. But I can tell you this group right here, it was pure laziness. It was pure (laughs) apathy. And I was like, you know what? And I was looking over, you know, I was going to be with them for like six or eight weeks at night. And I was like, you know what? I I do feel like we need to get a Shakespeare play in there. And they'll each have their own role. 
Well, one of my kids, he was like a class clown. <laughs> he loved, he just randomly, and they each had their own part, and we started off reading uh, A Midsummer or Much Ado About Nothing. Mm-hmm. I chose Much Ado About Nothing because it was a little, I just thought it would be a good one with them, mm-hmm. you know, because some of the characters I thought they could relate to. Anyway, one of them started reading in an English accent. He was reading, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. Yes, I know that they play but He started reading it in English accent. So then the other boys caught on, and they started, and it was so funny. And they were, I could tell they were looking at me like, is she going to make us quit? Mm-hmm. And she goes on. But they were having so much fun doing yeah. their little accents that we I read. Just go with it. We, I just went with it. I said, they were having a blast with it. I said, fine. <laughs> go, we read, they read the whole uh, uh, much Ado About Nothing with an English oh, accent, and I've never had more fun doing Shakespeare. <laughs> and that's where I'm going to bring in, these are lower-level kids. They've mm-hmm. struggled in school. They A lot of them have, you know, maybe not the strongest home lives. Mm-hmm. And I knew, and I, maybe I should have made this assumption, but I knew that they were going to struggle, and mm-hmm. I was going to have to explain every sentence and every mm-hmm. paragraph. We don't have time. We're mm-hmm. there like two hours a night for whatever, however, however many weeks. So I got online and said, surely there's a Shakespeare for dummies. Surely there's something that can help. <laughs> That's what I would need. And, and really, to be honest, I needed it too. It wasn't just them. I needed it too. Mm-hmm. Um, I found this series called No Fear Shakespeare. Cool. And what, it's really cool. They take every one of Shakespeare's play, and they have the original play. is On the left-hand side of the book is your original script, and on the right side is like a modern day translation. Oh, that's awesome. And I will tell you, what we would do is uh, we would read a lot in the original, mm-hmm. uh, but then when it, things got pretty murky and kind of hard to understand, we would pull out this No Fear of Shakespeare okay. and look at the English and really clear up if there's any uncertainties or anything. That is cool. So if it's okay with you, mm-hmm. and just to show the listeners, to me, how wonderful these books are, especially if you're teaching younger kids or lower-level kids who would really, really struggle with Shakespeare, mm-hmm. I just want to show you. So okay. this is just Act 1, Scene 1. I just took off from okay. Page 1. Much Ado uh, About Nothing. Uh, yeah, Much Ado About Nothing, one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. And there's a wonderful movie with, with by Kenneth Branagh. Which to me, and I actually really enjoy Yes, I love that movie. And it has, um, who plays Claudius? Oh, she's uh, a very famous actress. No. Oh, he. Oh, he. Uh, there was a famous actress in it, yeah, though. Yes. Um, um, I can't remember her I can't either, name. but Claudius was like... Well, Keanu Reeves plays the bad oh, guy. that's right. I, I and then uh, the guy off of Dead Poet Society... I can't think mm-hmm. of his name. He plays one of the main characters, I think so. Okay. Huh. Anyway, okay, so here we go. This is the original Shakespeare. It's Leonardo. I learn in this letter that Don Pedro of Aragon comes this night to Messina. Oh, yeah, Don Pedro is uh, <laughs> oh, one of my favorite actors, Denzel Washington. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, here's the English version. According to this letter, Don Pedro of Aragon and his army are coming to Messina tonight. Okay, original. Messenger. He is very nearby this. He was not three leagues off when I left him. Current day. He must be very nearby now. When I left him, he was less than nine miles from here. And I'm just going to do one more. Um, Okay, Leonardo. A victory is twice itself when the achiever brings home full numbers. I find here that Don Pedro hath bestowed much honor on a young Florentine called Claudio. 
today's version. A victory in battle is twice as victorious when all the soldiers return home safely. This letter also says that Don Pedro has given honors to a young man from Florence named Claudio. So anyway, and there's a lot more very complex passages, and then you can just look on the right side and see it in plain English. That's and I'm going to tell you, there's no fear of Shakespeare, side-by-side, mm -hmm. uh, -side, plain English, uh, I want to tell you it saved my life when I was teaching that night school. Absolutely, because I had never really read or studied the play, but I knew of some of the characters, and I just thought they could relate to those boys. I think that's awesome. And it saved mm -hmm. my life. I feel like it made them not get frustrated, and they're like, "Oh, cool, we're getting this. This makes sense," you know. And you know I would highly recommend this. This is funny because so I love the movie that the much ado about nothing that you lent me. But the problem I had is they talk so fast yes. that a lot of the times I kept rewinding it and rewinding mm -hmm. it. And you know, I, the thought just occurred to me, wouldn't that be awesome to watch that movie, but then have the yes. subtitles from the current day of oh, that book that's cool. that would telling be awesome. you what they're saying, actually, what it actually means in mm -hmm. modern English. And I will tell you, because I had read this uh, No Fear Shakespeare with the original play, mm -hmm and taught it when I watched the movie right. I wasn't lost because right. I had already read it. Uh, yeah. And one other thing and I'll be quiet I think and let what you go. helped me was you because you knew it so well mm -hmm. when I watched the movie I think you were explaining a lot I of it I may have I can't remember but another thing that really helped them and me mm -hmm. was uh, it has a complete list of characters with descriptions. Mm -hmm. And there's some commentary notes, too. Because when you're reading mm -hmm. Shakespeare, a lot of times there are multiple characters. Yes. And trying to keep them straight in your head, it was so nice to go, oh, wait, wait, wait. Now, who's Leonardo? Who's Beatrice? And just go back and read the real quick description, and you're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Okay, so you so. made a really good point just then. Okay, so people that aren't familiar with Shakespeare, and trust me, I'm not claiming to be familiar at all. All I can tell you is what little research I did for this podcast. But one thing people do need to understand is his plays contain multiple characters, and they contain multiple tw plot twists. Mm -hmm. There's always tons of plot twists and tons of characters so they are in my opinion they are hard to follow mm -hmm. you know and especially when you have his original language it makes it so you're already having trouble understanding the language and then trying to keep up with the characters and the plot twists. and a lot of times it's like a mental marathon yes yeah. and a lot like in julius caesar he's writing plays about actual historical figures actual yes. people and if you're not familiar with that history mm -hmm. so yeah you're right and the multiple the plot lines the multiple characters mm -hmm. and then trying to figure out wait who's he talking about mm -hmm. here you have to be familiar with the history there's a lot that goes into reading Shakespeare yes it's it's, it's not like you can just sit down and read it and understand it. exactly it's you have to be a, a mentally prepared to yeah. when you go to read okay so I just thought for just for a real quick summary of, of who Shakespeare is a little bit about his life for those who don't know anything about his background um, they don't know his exact birth date but they do have a baptismal record of April 26 1564 yeah that just blows my mind 1564 I don't know how many hundreds of years ago that was I could count it up but think about it we're sitting here talking about a man who was born what four or five hundred years ago mm-hmm yeah we're both counting uh, yeah, more, like, <laughs> more than that um, anyway yeah. oh, so he was an English playwright poet and actor widely regarded as as the greatest writer in the English language and the world's greatest dramatist. He is often called the England's national poet and the bard of Avon. His works include 39 plays, 154 sonnets, and three long narrative poems, poems. His plays have been translated into every major living language 
and are performed more often than those of any other playwright. They also continue to be studied and reinterpreted. Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, King Lear, and Macbeth are all considered to be among the finest works in the English language. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and here's some interesting facts about Shakespeare. I thought these were interesting. Let's see if you know any of these. Okay, there are more than eighty variations for the spelling of his name. No, I did not know that. <laughs> That's not wow. possible. Okay, I believe it. Brittany can be spelled twenty thousand ways. Yeah, I'm just kidding him. He, was in, he introduced almost 3,000 words to the English language. Wow. And he used over 7,000 words only once in his plays. Wow. Think about that. That's interesting. Think about that. 7,000 words that were used one time in a play. <laughs> That's crazy. I know. And who has the time to sit around and count these I words? I know. I'm like, who are these people that come up, that actually have the time to know that, I right? Know. Okay, he wrote close to one-tenth of the most quoted lines ever written in English. Okay, now here I am, negative Nelly. <laughs> but you know there's a big controversy. A lot of people think that Shakespeare did not write everything that we think he did. Yeah. They think that there's multiple writers mm-hmm. who wrote, and some even wrote under his name just so they could sell their works. Right. So I'm just throwing, I'm just being devil's advocate. Right. I'm not saying I believe it or don't believe right. it. But you're reading off these amazing statistics. Mm-hmm. But part of me is going, did he really? I did know. he really write that many that much so stuff? So the question boils down to is it really humanly possible? So the question boils down to how do we know which what has been authenticated mm-hmm. and or were these statistics taken from just those authenticated yes, book, uh, yes. plays or whatever. So, Okay, and the last thing was he is the second most quoted writer in the English language. Wow. Who's the first? I did not. I started looking it up and I got sidetracked. But I'm thinking from know. the Bible, like Jesus. Uh, second most quoted writer. Oh, of course, Jesus wasn't considered he a wasn't, writer. He didn't write the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I wasn't thinking. Yeah. So, be it, who's the most, most quoted, quoted writer? writer? That's a great question. Uh, my first thought was like a Emily Dickinson, but Someone. she's more poetry, or like a uh, Charles Dickens. I don't know. We, I need to look that up. Yeah, I, I started looking it up. And like I'll I said, look it up as you continue. Okay. Um. So a little bit about his. Uh, he grew up in Stratford. I never understood this. He was raised in Stratford upon Avon Avon. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Stratford upon Avon Avon. Warwickshire. Okay. At the age of eighteen he married Anne Hathaway. And don't we have an Anne Hathaway? That's what I was gonna say. Isn't she a famous actress? She's a famous actress. Like who dated Warren Beatty or something. Well isn't she the one who (laughs) in the Devil Wars Prada isn't isn't her isn't that Anne Hathaway? Am I completely off can't think of her name. I'll look it up. Um, yeah, probably when I see her name, I'm probably going to laugh, but I thought that was her name. Okay, so he had three children with her. He had, and this is interesting, Joy. He had three kids, Susanna, and his twins were named Hamnet and Judith. Oh, yeah. So I thought, Hamnet, is that, so he's, one of his plays is Hamlet. Okay, anyway, one of them died at the age of 11, which I thought was really Aww. sad. So anyway, somewhere between. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Uh, Anne Hathaway is the girl who played in, like, Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, that's what cool. I thought. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so sometime uh, between 1585 and 1592, he began a successful career in London as an actor, writer, and part-time owner of a play company called Lord Chamberlain's Men, which was later known as the King's Men. At age 49, he appears to have retired to Stratford, where he died three years later. So I thought it was interesting, Joy. He died at the age of 52. And he died within a month of signing his will, and the document said that he described himself as being in perfect health. 
So he basically signs a will, says I'm in perfect health, he dies a month later. That is weird. Um, and no contemporary sources explain how or why he died, but mm-hmm. they said half a, about 50 years later, there was a, a vicar of Stratford who had just a, a personal notebook, and he wrote in his notebook, Shakespeare, Drayton, and Ben Johnson had a merry meeting, and it seems drank too hard, for Shakespeare died of a fever there contracted. Oh my goodness, like alcohol poisoning? Well, no, <laughs> uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means because of the way it's written. But anyway, there's a, this vicar claims that he died of a fever. Angie, this says Shakespeare is the most quoted English author in our current times. Okay. Well, so, you know, who knows? I was just, yeah. I got it off of some yeah um, miscellaneous side. I looked up so many things. but Okay, so it, the one thing I did find out about him was... And it's, this is kind of true of everybody. It seems like so many people that are gray in our eye, in our society's eyes today, at the time, no one even cared for. Mm-hmm. And they said that during his lifetime, he really wasn't that highly revered. Like, mm-hmm. he wasn't the great... It was like, people didn't idolize him the way that they do today, wow. right? So they, it seems like people either loved him or hated him. Mm-hmm. Um, he did receive a lot, uh, a lot of... I'm sorry, get rid of that. Um, he received a lot of praise in his life but like i'm just saying not to the level that he right. had today now like uh, the superstar status he has it, yeah there's people today like like just what i read well ago people think he's the greatest mm-hmm. uh, writer that ever lived mm-hmm. so anyway but now there were i did find several authors that did not like him mm-hmm. and did not that's it more like hated him i guess i'm not being strong enough anyway you think that's because they were jealous or they just didn't think his no, work they, was they literally or? thought he was not not good they okay. didn't think he was good at what he i did. remember this i remember looking this stuff i'm going to read you just a couple of quotes okay so um one of this this person was a this is this is in 1662 so this would have been around the time of shakespeare uh he was an english diarist named sam peppis and anyway he attended a performance of a midsummer night's dream in london and when he left this is what he wrote we saw midsummer's night's dream which i had never seen before nor nor shall ever again (laughs) for it is the most insipid ridiculous play that ever i saw in my life i confess some good dancing and some handsome women which was a pleasure but you know that that was it okay leo tolstoy do you know who that is Yes, he wrote War and Peace. Yes. Okay. And do you remember who, do you remember the, okay, I hope I give you a hint. You remember who loved Leo Tolstoy and you would see him written into his comic strip? Oh, no. Well, who was uh, Charles Schultz loved Leo Tolstoy. Oh, and he I would write, and, and sometimes if you read Peanuts mm-hmm. strips, you will see things. Oh, he would I quote, that somehow. He would talk about Leo Tolstoy That's or he funny. would quote him. And I was like, who? But they just said that Charles Schultz, Schultz loved him. Okay. So this is what Tolstoy had to say. He called Shakespeare's plays trivial, trivial and positively bad <laughs> and dismissed Shakespeare himself as insignificant in and inartistic who was not only not moral, but he was immoral. He wow. thought he was immoral. Uh, anyway. I don't know. I feel like even just... I just got through reading, you know, on that little book about uh, Macbeth. Um, mm-hmm. To me, there were some little moral... There was mm-hmm. a huge moral lesson in that. And it was... Um, well, I had to really get into it. But basically, it was these three spirits. Which I've noticed mm-hmm. that about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. He really was into the supernatural. Mm-hmm. He was always bringing in witches and mediums. Like in this play, you know, you got three spirits or three witches who are literally using a cauldron and, and cooking all this stuff. But anyway... One of the quotes that really got to me 
the spirits promised uh, Macbeth, this famous Scottish general, I guess, they promised him that um, you're, you will be king one day. He was just a general at the time. You're going to be king one day. And his buddy, who was standing there with him, who had fought with him, said, you know, these spirits usually tell just enough of mm-hmm. the truth to get you to take actions yep. that actually are to your detriment. Yes. And I think we find mm-hmm. that that's true in the Bible, mm-hmm. that these a lot of times these demons or these spirits, they do. They do speak just enough truth to yes. get you in there, but then but the rest of it's lies and deceit and destruction. Right. So my point is, and that's exactly what happened. So Macbeth, I won't go and bore the listeners with the big long story, but basically he and his wife took steps and ended up killing the king and doing all this stuff to make the prophecy come true. So basically by listening to the spirits, it was to their detriment. Right. And that and that's what Shakespeare, through this other character, said something very wise, and that's exactly what happened. And to me, the moral of that story was... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's all about it was all about uh, selfish ambition and things like mm-hmm. that, and how it ends in tragedy. But yeah, was, there was a big moral lesson in there. So he, you know, he just said he was immoral, and I, yes. I was thinking, what? Maybe, maybe he doesn't mean his works. Maybe he means him and his private life. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. He uh, let me just read that real quick. It says he. Oh, he says he was an insignificant, inartistic writer who was not only moral but immoral. Insignificant. Uh, Don't know about that one. Here's what I think. Um, When he said he was immoral, I thought, okay, yes, if you're familiar with any of the plays, there is a lot of immorality that goes on. Mm -hmm. But I'm like you. I think he, he, yes, he has a lot of immorality in his plays to show Mm -hmm. you. um, He's making, yeah, he's he's, making points. Yes, it's. By showing characters and their immoralities, making the points about immorality. And to show us, like, how low and depraved human nature can actually become yeah. if you follow the, these immoral ways, if that makes and sense. And I think I misspoke a while ago. You said, he, uh, when he said uh, Shakespeare was insignificant and immoral. Yeah, I think he was referring to Shakespeare yeah, he himself. Was refer- yeah, he wasn't referring maybe to the wo- his works, but him himself. And I just immediately okay. went to the works. I, well, no, you're yeah. right. I See, I thought the same thing. I thought okay. he was saying his plays were immoral. But yeah, yeah, that would make more sense. Okay, so then there's George Bernard Shaw. He was an 1890s theater critic, and he wrote, With the exception of Homer, there is no eminent writer, not even Sir Walter Scott, whom I despise so entirely <laughs> as I despise Shakespeare. When there's I measure always my a mind. Simon Cowell in the group. Yeah, always. that's true. I could see Simon Cowell if he had... I could. You know what I mean? Yes. It's always going to be harsh critics. Yeah. And no it was so funny because he said, are, he's like, and he's like, not even Sir Walter Scott. So apparently he hated Sir apparently Walter he Scott. Apparently he hated Sir Walter Scott. Yeah. Okay. okay, the last one uh, is J.R. Tolkien. And you know mm-hmm. who that is. Yeah, that's the Lord of the Rings yes. author. Yes, and you're going to find this really funny. Okay. Okay, so they apparently when J.R. Tolkien says he was delivering a speech, um, I don't remember. I think he was in some type of debating group in college or something. Mm-hmm. I may have that completely wrong, but he was he was delivering a speech, and he's. They said all of a sudden he just poured out this sudden flood of emotion, and they said he just started talking about Shakespeare, and he basically said it, it says he poured a sudden flood of unqualified abuse upon Shakespeare, upon his filthy birthplace, his squalid surroundings, and his sordid character, and then later really? on, yes, 
So oh, it's interesting. It makes you kind of wonder if Shakespeare maybe had a bad reputation or something. Among... Well, it does seem like um, he had money problems. It seems like he did have a lot of debt. Now, I could be confusing. I've done so much research on so many authors. I could be totally having him mixed up with someone He actually became else. very rich, according to what okay, I read. Okay, but at one point, was he in a lot of debt? And, and there are rumors, too, that he had a mistress. Okay, I don't know. I didn't get that far. I read one thing that they some people think he had a mistress. Okay, but. so this is the funny part about okay. J.R. Tolkien. They said that apparently he held a grudge against him. It says, in particular, he did not like Shakespeare's commandeering of the word elf in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. Okay, so when he wrote Lord of the Rings, I guess he had a lot of elves in his, yes. in his stories. Mm -hmm. But apparently elf had a different meaning an original meaning, okay. and they say when Shakespeare used the word elf, he kind of changed the meaning of it, and they said... That was 500 years ago, or whatever. What does J.R. Tolkien or whoever care? I honestly don't know what era J.R. Tolkien lived in, but they well, just... Well, the Lord of the Rings, that was in like the eight... Oh, did, did he write that? Oh, I'll have to look well, that Well, J.R. Tolkien, now he's not a, a modern writer, Joy. You know those I books know, are but old. It, but they're like from the 1800s. They're Probably. From, they're talking centuries removed right, from Shakespeare. What's his problem? I have no idea. But anyway, <laughs> they just said that he could not stand that he commandeered the word elf. Like he felt like he kidnapped this word oh, and now gosh. he can't use the okay, word. Okay, here it is. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien mm -hmm. was born in uh, January 3rd, 1892. Okay. And he died in 1973. Oh, so he is a little more current so than I thought. So he's a little more current than you think, but my point is, what is, okay, maybe <laughs> I, I just don't have all the info, but I'm like, that's centuries yeah. ago. What they, do you care what words? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they saw maybe you're the one. It, it, it literally says, uh, in particular, his his com commandeering of the word elf in Midsummer Night's Dream. Like that, he, he didn't okay, like that. that is just okay, funny. let me ask you something. Do you think there is much interest in Shakespeare today? If you were to guess, because you haven't been researching like I have. I would say yes, because you hear of the Shakespeare in the Park, and it's still required reading in a lot of high schools. It's still required reading in colleges. There's movies to this day being made about Shakespeare. Yes, I still mm -hmm. think there's a lot of interest. Yes, and I so I was I was just curious to know is there much interest in Shakespeare today? Well, I was absolutely floored when I typed in Shakespeare. I just was curious. I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's any podcast about Shakespeare. Guess what I found? One of the first things that popped up said, here are the top 35 Shakespeare podcasts you wow. must follow in 2021. Okay. 35. That's the top 35. Wow, okay, So there's amazing. more than 35. So it says, here are the top 35 Shakespeare podcasts you must follow in 2021. So I'm thinking, the fact that there's even more than 10, or I would have guessed five dedicated to Shakespeare. Okay, so the top, and just, and I thought, okay, if there's any... I mean, hello. I don't know if there's anyone out there listening right now who could care less about Shakespeare, right? As a matter of fact, I was kind of leery of even doing a podcast about Shakespeare. But I actually, after it was all said and done, I kind of found his life was kind of interesting. Okay, so if there is anyone out there, I don't know if you're out there, if you could care less. But here are the top four Shakespeare podcasts if you're interested. Okay. So the first one is called Shakespeare Unlimited. It's home to the world's largest collection of Shakespeare materials. Two, the Shakespeare Life, or that Shakespeare Life, takes you behind the curtain into the real life of William Shakespeare. Number three, the State of Shakespeare. This is a this has a mission to help inspire and illuminate theaters makers, students, and educators to discover new ways of bringing Shakespeare to life. And four, the plays the thing. This this podcast dedicates six episodes to each play. 
and they just go into that. Wow. Okay, so I personally listen to Shakespeare Unlimited, and I listen to this podcast just sporadically for about two weeks, and surprisingly, I enjoyed it. Okay, good. Okay, and I listened to, I probably ended up listening, each podcast was around anywhere from 20, most of them were around about 20 to 30 minutes, so I mm-hmm. actually got to listen to quite a few of them. Um, anyway, I found them very enjoyable, so I'm going to just, just to whet your appetite, Joy, I'm going to tell you just briefly what some of these podcasts that okay. I listen to and see if it sounds interesting okay. to you, okay? So this one was called Shakespeare and Insane Asylums, okay? <laughs> from the mid-1840s through the mid-1860s in the United States, no figure was cited as an authority on insanity and mental functioning more frequently than William Shakespeare. Really? Yes. Yes, that sounds very interesting. And they said that they found citations in medical journals and sworn legal testimony from Shakespeare. They said he was the leading authority at the time. Wow. They would, he would, they would go to him because a lot of his plays dealt with insanity. Okay. Okay. How about uh, Shakespeare and the Tabard Inn? What if Shakespeare and his friends had gotten together and carved their names on the wall of an inn made famous by Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales? Hmm. Okay, you know Chaucer? Mm-hmm. Oh, now I will say... I took a whole semester class on Chaucer and you the know Canterbury how long Tales ago was the focus. Lived. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the Canter they're saying that there is a chance that he carved his name on an actual inn wow. that was in one of the Canterbury Tales. And wow. I was like, that is so cool. That's cool. Okay, this next one here, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. This was called The Millionaire and the Bard, and it's about a man named Henry Clay Folger. He was super uber wealthy, and he worked for, I want to say, John D. Rockefeller. He was mm-hmm. like his right-hand man. It was, it was one of the Rockefellers that was super rich. Yeah. Um, anyway, he um, started collecting Shakespeare folios. So, f- I wish I had time to get into the folio. But you, We had a conversation on this one, and okay. it was very interesting what a folio is and mm-hmm. how they were able to authenticate a lot. Yes. And this one guy's trying to collect all the folios. Yeah, so mm-hmm. after Shakespeare died, he had two friends who took it upon themselves to make a, to get a collection together of all but two of Shakespeare's plays, and it was called The First Folio. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know there's, right now, I want to say there's around, around 30 in existence. I, I, I'm t- I don't remember. There's not many. Mm-hmm. And so anytime a new folio is found, which is maybe like once every 100 years or something, that it's a big deal that they found another of Shakespeare's folios. Mm-hmm. And so they said if these two friends of his had not created this folio, that um, they said there's a chance that his plays, would no one would even know about him today, that wow. they would not have. And they said it's... As far as I know, Shakespeare never had any intention of his works living on. Like, he just, he never... He just never made a he, plan. No, there was never a plan. There was never nothing public, anything... I mean, there was things published in his time, but he, it, he himself, they said there's no evidence that he authorized or planned for his works to continue. Wow. And so if it wasn't for these two guys doing the first folio, they said no one would probably know Shakespeare today. That is crazy. Yeah. So anyway, this Henry Clay Folger... He assembled the world's largest Shakespeare collection, and he owns a ton of the first folios. And it's in Washington, D.C., and you can go and visit the Folger Library today. Okay. And they're also the one, they are the ones that sponsor uh, this So we podcast. actually have some original writings by William Shakespeare in his hand, like in his penmanship. Well, I don't know about that. These are I all... I wonder. The, oh, I honestly don't know. Because I, I remember teaching this. We actually even talked about the type of paper that they mm-hmm. would have written on then. Of course, they, I think mm-hmm. they used the feather quills 
back then, you know, the quill pen. Yes. But I would, wouldn't it be cool to see what it his was, handwriting looked like? They said like? the paper was more like cloth then yeah. than it would have been today. I want to see his handwriting. Yeah. And who knows? I'll look it up while you're talking. Okay, now this next <laughs> one is called Sights, Sounds, and Smells of Elizabethan Theater. Okay, so what would it have been like to go to an actual play during Shakespeare's time? They said they used they used actual fireworks on stage. They used fake blood, fake body parts, and you could smell you and they used the smell of blood and death. They had actual things you could smell wow. to make it smell like death and blood. Hey, do you remember and I don't know, I think you were with me, when we went to a community college in Fort Smith, back then it was called West Ark mm-hmm. and there was a speaker and he, his main focus was on the groundlings. I think that's what they were called. And they were these uh, kind of the everyday peasant that lived there that would go to Shakespeare's plays. And he said some of them would actually drool. And they said, he was just talking about they were kind of nasty. And there would actually be drool on the stage and spit on the stage. And if somebody didn't like a play, they would throw rotten vegetables. But his main focus was Shakespeare. I just remembered this as we were talking about it. Were you not there with me? Well, they had a guest speaker mm-hmm. at the auditorium. And he was an expert on Shakespeare. But I'll never forget him talking. I think they were called the groundlings. Well, it's just funny that you said that because for some reason I was going through something the other day and I found, oh, it was an old scrapbook. And I found an old program where we had went and listened to someone who talked about uh, Shakespeare. And I thought someone else talked about Edgar Allan Poe. But anyway. Yes, I think that was a different That might have been a different talk. But I saw something where someone talked about Shakespeare, and I did not remember that. The groundlings were commoners who were also referred to as stinkards or penny stinkers. The name groundlings came about after Hamlet referenced them as such when the play was first performed around 1600. Okay. And I remember they were described as kind of... They didn't smell good. Mm. They never bathed. And something about well, them drooling. I'm glad uh, you brought like that, that up because one thing that I kept hearing over and over was the type of people that would have gone to these plays would have been every, your everyday working class citizens is, is what I heard. You know, it wasn't like your upper crust people. It was it was kind of yes. like your everyday entertainment to it go. It says they were rowdy body, body yeah. and mm-hmm. often known to throw things at the players who did yeah. not meet their approval. Okay, <laughs> okay. Actually, you're making me remember this. I'm kind of remembering. It's not so much your working class people. It was it was some of it was your lower rungs. Yeah, it was so your lower the, society that was actually yes, going to these the plays. So yes, society. that would make yes. sense. It would go uh-huh. hand in hand with what you're saying. Yeah. So okay, you know how you talked earlier about some. You know, I've heard some of this things we know about Shakespeare today may not have even been his writing. Right. Well, someone used plagiarism detecting software, and Ooh. they found. Okay, so what happened was. Um, they, there was a 450-year-old unpublished manuscript called A Brief Discourse of Rebellion and Rebels. Okay? It was never published, and someone just happened upon it. And, and they started noticing it had a lot of similarities to Shakespeare. And they recognized a lot of the writings, and it sounded like things from Shakespeare. Okay. Well, they used plagiarism detecting software, and they went through this document. It's called the George North Manuscript. And it says... They found multiple instances of matches with passages in Shakespeare's plays. Oh. So this was a manuscript that would have been written either before or during the time of Shakespeare. And when they did the plagiarism software, they found multiple instances of things in Shakespeare's plays that matched this manuscript. Right. So they think he might have take, found some of his writings or copied some of his writings from this manuscript. So that was so was Shakespeare the one that committed plagiarism yes. or this other guy? They, no, they think that he... 
copied things from this what was called the George North okay. manuscript. Well, how do they know that it was copied? Which way it was copied? Because you have the one manuscript and you find multiple instances that was written before Shakespeare. Yes. Oh, it was yeah. written before Shakespeare wrote the yes. play. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Right. Um, okay, and then this one here was called. This wasn't wasn't so much about Shakespeare, but I I would love to read this book. It's it was an episode called How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England. Okay, so basically this lady wrote a book, and she's talking about, like, well, let me just read. This is, what's a knave? How about a varlet? Did people in Shakespeare's time really throw the contents of their chamber pots out their windows? How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England, a guide for knaves, fools, harlots, cuckolds, drunkards, liars, thieves, and braggarts covers all the things we don't talk about in polite company, including dirty words, bad manners, criminal conduct, and sex. Oh, so wow. I thought that book would be kind of fun. What it's was just, the name of it again? It's called um, How to Behave Badly <laughs> in Elizabethan England. Yeah, that sounds so. They're just talking like about all the things you don't typically talk about that yeah, went on in the society during that, that day. Like yeah, like an interesting book. Yeah, okay, now this next one... I found, this is, and this is the last one, uh, I thought this one was super interesting. Okay, there it's called The Actor and the Assassin, Edwin and John Wilkes Booth. Okay, well, you know who John Wilkes mm-hmm. Booth is. He assassinated um, Abraham uh, Lincoln, right. Yeah. So, actor Edwin Booth was one of the 19th century's biggest stars. One of the Ill- illegitimate sons of equally famous actor Junia, Junius Brutus Booth. He made thousands of dollars touring America's grandest theaters and playing Shakespeare's greatest roles. But today, relatively few people have heard of Edwin Booth. Instead, they remember his brother, also an actor named John Wilkes Booth. That's because on April 14, 1865, he assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. The Booth story is like one of Shakespeare's tragedies with an unstable father, a rivalry between brothers, and an ending that changed the course of history. So basically, and I did not know this, so John Wilkes Booth's father... They said he was extremely famous, and he was known for playing Shakespeare roles. So his two boys grew up. They followed in his footsteps. They both became actors. But John's brother was the better actor, and he got more roles. And then they said that John Will Smith was not a good actor. And he ends up, so there was a strong connection. And what's even more crazy, Joy, is that Abraham Lincoln was a huge Shakespeare fan. Oh, So it's just really kind of uncanny. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's all I had. Uh, Kind of long, but just kind of wanted to tell you. It's interesting, I found some interesting things about him. And I think we talked about this off air, how little is known about Shakespeare. Yes, yes. And I... So it's it's kind of the unknown that's intriguing to me. Yes. What all we really don't know. And that was one thing I was going to mention, but I, I never did. And they said that one of the things that intrigues people so much is there is so little known about him. Mm-hmm. So any little scrap of evidence that anybody can find, it's, it makes the news because mm-hmm. no one knows anything about him. And where is he buried? Is he buried at Stratford-on-Avon? He is buried in a, it's in a cathedral somewhere, I okay. believe. Uh, and then there's there's even a, is it called an epitaph? Or what's that called when they inscribe mm-hmm. something on epitaph, you? Anyway, yeah. it says, um, it says, if anyone should ever move these bones, may a curse be put on you. Ooh. Like, don't move his bones mm-hmm. or you'll be cursed. It was kind of interesting. So, all right, Joy, we're going to play a real quick game. Okay. I know we run a little bit long, but it's okay. We're going to have some fun. Um, it's called the Shakespeare Matching Game. All right. Woo-hoo. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, okay, Joy, I know you give tests to your students sometimes. Yep. And you, I'm sure you I'm sure you do multiple choice, fill in the blank. You do all that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You ever do some matching? 
Yeah, actually, yeah. A little bit of matching. A little bit of matching. Okay, good. You're getting ready to do some matching. Okay. So I'm getting ready to test your Shakespeare skills with oh, this boy. wonderful matching game. Okay, so I've got a list of Shakespeare plays. I'm going to read a brief. Oh, no. I'm going to read a brief summary. And I want you to match it to the correct play. Okay. Now, this can be super embarrassing. Yeah, okay. So, I'm going to give you... This is your list. Okay. Go ahead and read off the, those titles okay. for everyone. Taming of the Shrew, Twelfth Night, Hamlet, Shakespeare in Love. Well, that's a movie. Oh, I don't... Oh, I just did that to be funny. Oh, okay. Gotcha, it, yeah. gotcha. King Lear, <laughs> The Comedy of Errors, Romeo and Juliet, Juliet... Macbeth. Okay, I'm just gonna oh, read great. a real. I'm gonna read the just the plot. Okay. Here's your pen, so as you uh, you can, can mark, mark them off them. as you get okay, up. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So which play is about a king who divides his kingdom among his two daughters who flatter him, but he banishes the third one who actually loves him? Okay. Is that King Lear? That is King Lear. Ding 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 ding. Okay. Three witches tell the Scottish general that he will be the king of Scotland. Encouraged by his wife, the general kills the king, becomes the new king, and kills more people out of paranoia. Okay, that's why I just got the reading, the summary out of the book we're doing this yeah. over. Macbeth. Macbeth, yeah. that's correct. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, Lucentia, Lucentio become, or loves Bianca, but cannot court her until her shrewish <laughs> older sister, Katharina, marries... Taming of the Shrew. Yeah, I think that's funny. Well, I think they've even done some modern-day movies on that On the one. Taming of the Shrew. Yeah. I think a lot of people have probably heard of that. Yeah. Okay, after being separated, or after both being separated from their twins in a shipwreck, hmm. Antipholus and his slave Dromeo go to Ephesus to find them. The other set of twins lives in Ephesus, and the new arrivals cause a series of incidents incidents of mistaken identity. That's got to be the comedy of errors. Yeah, that's, okay. that's very good. So see what I'm talking about? He has all these like, I know. two sets of twins, I've never read that. and they okay. one goes to an island. Everybody's getting them confused. Yeah, that's okay. kind of typical. Okay. Viola or Viola separated from her twin Sebastian. He loves twins. Maybe yeah. it's because he had twins. I never thought oh, about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's he, right. He had he a set of twins, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Viola, separated from her twin Sebastian, dresses as a boy <laughs> and works for the Duke Orsino, whom she falls in love with. Sebastian arrives, causing a flood of mistaken identity, and marries Olivia. Viola then reveals she is a girl and marries Orsino. <laughs> That is Twelfth Night. Oh, how did you know that? Well, I'll tell you how I know that. There is a movie that called She's the Man. Okay. With Amanda Bynes. Is oh, the, yeah. And it's based on Twelfth Night. I didn't and there's know that. Re- and her name, I think, in the movie is Viola. Oh, yeah. And there's references to Shakespeare and the Twelfth Night all through the movie. I have, I've actually seen that movie. Okay, yes. Yeah. That is based on Does the Does she Twelfth go to school and plays football or soccer? Soccer. Or yeah. And, yeah. And there's a co- behind-the-scenes commentary mm-hmm. with the director talking, and they'll point out, oh, see that sign? That's a nod to Shakespeare. See oh. this? That's a nod to this character in Twelfth Night. Oh. So the whole movie is a nod to Twelfth Night. Oh, and she's the one dressing up like the boy. Did not know that. Well, I didn't know it till recently. So okay. An age-old vendetta between two powerful families erupts into bloodshed. A young, lovesick Romeo Montague falls instantly in love with Juliet Capulet, who is due to marry her father's choice. Of course, that's Romeo and Juliet. Yes, Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Which we did read in that. Thing. Okay, now you're going to get this last one because it's the only one left. But... There's two left. Oh. There's Hamlet and Shakespeare in Love, but you're not oh. going to do it in the movie. Okay, so Hamlet, we'll go ahead and tell the readers, it is... The ghost of the king of Denmark tells his son to avenge his murder by killing the new king. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, I think we've pretty much covered everything I, I can in about Shakespeare. Uh, well, one of the podcasts you reminded me, it was called What If Shakespeare Wrote Mean Girls? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and, funny. And, and a guy actually wrote a book and it was Mean Girls, but as if Shakespeare had written oh, it. Oh, I would love to read that. That yeah. sounds so funny. Yeah, it, and it had a picture of these three girls and they were dressed like Shakespearean clothes, but they looked like Lindsay Lohan. And <laughs> it was really funny. So. That sounds funny. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, I, I gotta say, I'm not gonna be reading Shakespeare anytime soon probably ever I, i'm not a shakespeare Me fan either, but the little book that you're promoting yeah, there yeah. i definitely would like to read yeah. a few more of those exactly that's what i'm saying if, if you're out there and you know I, I don't know if there's anybody out there who really wants to read shakespeare but you know if you want to read it in an understandable fashion and you just want to read like maybe just some real quick summaries this is a great little book now you'd have to go on ebay or somewhere to get it because yeah. you're not gonna find this in a local well, i don't no, think you're gonna i don't find think it. like you're gonna find no. like amazon or but anything. i maybe love i love how you uh, introduced us to the No Fear Shakespeare. Yeah. I think that is awesome. Yeah, if you actually want to read the whole play and understand it, definitely yes. No Fear Shakespeare. But if you just want a real succinct summary, well written, yes. definitely uh, say the name of that book again, please. Um, Tales from Shakespeare by Tell. Charles and Mary Lamb. Okay. Yeah. Um, and also, I was just thinking, as a parent, let's just say you have a child who's who's being uh, asked to read Shakespeare for school, mm -hmm. and they're like, "Mom, I can't do this. I hate it." Good, go buy one of those books. Yeah, I mean, my gosh. Yeah, and there's, I'm sure there's plenty them. of summaries online. I think That's it would true. help so much if they. That would be my advice to my daughter when she has to read Shakespeare: mm -hmm. is get familiar with who are all the main players, mm -hmm. who are they, are they related, what's their role, and then kind of get familiar with the setting and the historical period. And then definitely I'll get her a No Fear Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah depending on what, if she's having trouble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and I, I one thing I, I, I hadn't even thought about it till just this second. I actually own the movie Romeo and Juliet. Now, it's mm -hmm. not the Leonardo DiCaprio modern version. It's the actual original version. Of, well, there's several versions. Well, I, yeah, there. you're right. It's, it's When I say the original, I, what I mean is it's an older version. It's, yeah. it's 1970s. Mm -hmm. And I gotta say, the thing about Shakespeare, like, that story, Romeo and Juliet, is probably one of the most tragic stories mm -hmm. I've ever read. Because you're just sitting there, leave, at the end of it, you're going, why? So senseless. This, it's so senseless. This didn't have to happen. Mm -hmm. So he has such a way of bringing home, you know, he's so, he, he can write tragedy. I get why they say he can write like no mm -hmm. other, because a lot of his tragedies and comedies you're you're you li it literally just leaves you feeling oh my gosh you know mm -hmm. but but he's but he's making a very very strong point so like in Romeo and Juliet it was the hatred these families had for each other mm -hmm. and, and what that hatred uh what came to fruition because yeah. of it so he yes he makes he's very powerful yes he's writing is very, very powerful. powerful yeah okay uh we're gonna do a couple more podcast joy's getting ready to start school here in a couple weeks mm -hmm. so we're hoping we can get some in so we don't have to miss any more fridays and uh, get some in the queue here whatever you want to call it so pray for us that we have stamina to get some more in tonight right yeah yeah okay uh what are we doing next uh, I do not know. Uh, I've got Tim Te Tebow ready. So who, oh, who wants right. to hear about Tim yeah, Tebow? Yeah, we may be doing yeah. a podcast over Tim Tebow. Yeah, so, so all right. If you're and a Tim Tebow fan, get ready. Actually, that one's going to be a fun one. Yeah, okay. I'm excited. So we will see you next time on Twin, Twin Talk. Talk.